The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Good Morning New York. Hey, it's good news this morning. It's season two begins, and we have great shows lined up for you coming up in the next several weeks, including this one. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and you are listening to Good Morning New York here on the Voice America Network. On the show today, we will discuss hot topics with my panel of real estate experts, of course. But first, some uh, news headlines uh, making uh, a splash this day. Yankee third baseman Alex Rodriguez wants to return to his former digs at 15 Central Park West, but rumor has it that the building he once called home won't take him back. Why? The 38-year-old superstar used to rent an apartment in the building, for $30,000 per month, but he departed in 2011 and he moved somewhere else. Now he has decided to come back, but other owners in the building are reportedly against A-Rod's return because the negative press he tends to stir up. Can't imagine that. He is also uh, being blacklisted because of his inclusion in Michael Gross's book, House of Outrageous Fortune, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago here on the show, and that's according to the New York Daily News. Let's see where his latest um, controversy ends, so stay tuned on that one. It is one of the hard truths of New York real estate. Restaurants help revitalize, even stabilize uh, neighborhoods for years, but then they are forced to close when their rents skyrocket. The latest casualty is Union Square Cafe. This establishment is a pioneer restaurant that's become the mothership of the fleet run by entrepreneur Danny Meyer. Meyer owns and operates several other eateries in Manhattan. The East 16th Street restaurant has been in place for 30 years, but will close its doors at the end of next year because of the rent rise. Plans to move to a new location have not been disclosed. As New York City's first family, the de Blasios, are in the process of moving into Gracie Mansion, which is the mayor's official residence here in New York, questions are being raised as to what they are planning to do with their home in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Well, according to his spokeswoman, they are still deciding on what to do. And according to a broker in the area, the house can get $6,500 per month in rent. And if they decide to sell it, they can ask up to $2.2 million. Interesting. When the curtain goes down each night on Broadway, many of its actors exit stage north or to homes in upper Manhattan neighborhoods like Washington Heights and Inwood. The Broadway community is a very tight-knit community, and actors help each other always. Several out-of-work out actors work as real estate agents in these northern neighborhoods and are selling the hood really hard. Most of these very talented actors are renting their apartments and find the area very quiet and very private. The so-called whisper listing is a long-time staple among New York City's sellers looking to quietly unload a high-priced luxury rental property. Sellers choose to sell their properties without listing them for a variety of reasons. They can be in financial distress, or they can be celebrities or public figures hoping to keep news and photos of their homes off the website. But new market conditions in Manhattan mean that off-market deals are becoming more common 
among the masses and are no longer limited to the top end of the market. Sellers also may not want to list with an agent because they are fearful of signing an exclusive agreement that is a six-month commitment, and it may be too long for them. This may be just another manifestation of a very tight inventory and marketplace. We'll talk about that uh, in, a little, in a little bit. A new development on the Upper West Side is worth noting. 732 West End Avenue is a new condo with 14 residences, all accessed by the building's privately keyed elevator, which opens onto a uh, full floor for each home. Residents will step off the private elevator into a vaulted ceiling foyer, an expansive living room with gas fireplace, and stunning views of the Hudson River. Each of the kitchens are equipped with world-class appliances and wine storage. Treeline West End Avenue is conveniently located between Broadway and Riverside Drive, and all public transportation is easily accessible. While set apart from the hustle and bustle of New York City streets, West End Avenue maintains proximity to New York's culture, entertainment, restaurant, and shops. Here's a stunning fact, and we've talked about this before. 30% of all apartments between 49th Street and 70th Street and between 5th and Park Avenues are vacant at least 10 months of the year, according to a census estimate provided to New York Magazine. And since 2008, around 30% of condo sales in large-scale Manhattan developments have been by buyers with overseas addresses or through secretive LLCs. Those figures are especially shocking considering New York City residential real estate costs are at an all-time high, affordable housing is still a major issue, and homelessness in New York City is the worst it's been since the Great Depression. So, why are all these apartments in Midtown and elsewhere, uh, many costing millions of dollars sitting empty? Well, in short, Manhattan condos today are like the new Swiss bank accounts of yesterday. We are going to talk a lot more about that in the next couple of weeks but I thought it'd be interesting just to set that up this afternoon, this morning rather. So let's get to our panel. We have Niall Lundgren, president of his own firm, Dalian Realty today, Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, Perot Brombat from Core Real Estate, and Abi Alcacer from Blue Realty Group. So good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Ben, can you hear me? I can hear you. Cool. All right. I'm often asked if there are any rules in determining square footage in apartments and townhouses. We all know that buyers of apartments and townhomes in New York City often look look to the square footage of a property as a measurement of properties of the property's value. Always one of the key factors for a buyer in their decision to purchase a property is the calculation of the price per square foot. Now, I, you know, I have lots to say about this, but let's let's get into it. So, is it important to keep in mind that? The approximate square footage of an apartment is often just that, an approximation. I mean, why are people carrying on about square footage? I think square footage is important because it, it certainly just allows people to, to compare other apartment to apartments, like apples to apples, uh, if you look at it on a price per square foot basis. But you've got to really understand that square footage doesn't necessarily indicate a more livable apartment, right? So you can analyze you know, square footage, you know, from apartment A to apartment B, but many times the square footage of the apartment can be sometimes misleading. Um, square footage refers to the entire surface area of the apartment, including closets or hallways, bathrooms, for example. And if your apartment has a very long or narrow hallway that can, you know, in some cases be unusable, that will inflate the overall square footage of the apartment. So you really have to look at the layout, 
when you're considering square footage. I think that's very important. Well, one of the thing, one of the things I say to my my buyers all the time, you know, when it comes to this particular issue, is it's for me, it's more of a visual Nile, as I think you're you're saying, it's more of a visual thing. I mean, people get hung up on numbers, people get hung up on actual dimensions. I need to know the dimensions of the room, and I say, well. Just look at the room and visualize what goes in that room or what you can put in that room. It's more important to me than the actual square footage. But, you know, we have to we have to take into consideration the different types of people out there who need to justify, I guess, in their own mind, why they are paying uh, a particular price for an apartment. And I think everybody wants to take that back or peel that onion back to, well, it's, you know, 800 square feet and the cost per square foot is X. But you know, how, how do you deal with, you know, the hard to, uh, Niall, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but how do you deal with the hard to measure areas within a footprint, like, you know, dead space hallways or closets? I mean, do I really care that the closet may be 50 square feet? Seriously? I'm not living in the closet. Yeah. And I think, I think that just comes down to, you know, just kind of having an open, you know, discussion about it and then saying, look, you know, all right, the square footage is a thousand square feet here versus a thousand square feet in this apartment, but this apartment doesn't have, you know, a really livable, um, you know, living room, for example. There might be, you know, a structural column right in the middle of it or, you know, a bigger closet or a narrow hallway. And then you can kind of, I would, I would adjust it down just in terms of, you have to, you have to be able to adjust a little bit, I think. How, how, um, Deborah, how in you know the the condo world do, does a square footage differ possibly from from the co-op world? I think that condos are measured differently than co-ops are. Co-ops are measured from the inside of the apartment, and many condos are married for, are measured from the outside walls. Many times when I have co-op buyers, they'll say, well, I own two condos in Florida, and it's measured this way and this way, and why isn't this measured? And I try to have the conversation about, well, you're buying shares. We really don't talk about square feet. And let's have a professional measure it, because the people who are the most hung up on square feet tend to bring their own tape measures. And they say, well, I did the math, and it's this and this and this, but neither they nor I are a draftsperson. Well, that, that's a good point because most people will come back and say, well, I want to measure these rooms and I want to look at the dimensions. And so they measure the three, four, five rooms, whatever it is, and they come up with you know a number that may be a little shorter than what's publicized for the square footage. And what they don't necessarily understand, and this is what I was trying to get at with the condo calculation, sometimes they're measuring from the outside wall in you know, the window ledge or the thickness of, of the building's wall. Now, of course, we don't live in that space, but for whatever reason, you know, it is calculated that way. Additionally, sometimes in condos, the, the square footage will go outside into some of the, the public areas, which in this particular case would be the hallways. So one would say, why, you know, why is this particular building or this offering plan, if it's a, if it's a new building, why are they calculating square footage this way? Why are they taking from the outside wall to, say, the middle of the hallway and including that in my living space? You know, how, you know, how do you address that? And by the way, most people take the, the, the calculation or the, the square footage documented in an offering plan as Bible because, well, if the attorney general signs off on this, this is what it is. And I keep thinking because I have you know, clients, even, even in new development um, uh, uh, floor plans, that say to me, but but wait a minute, you know, when I measure this with my own measuring tape, it falls short of what's stated. How do we get by that, guys? I mean, what what is, I mean, square footage really is, 
a dilemma in this town and has been forever, but how do we get past that? What, what do we say to people? Well, Niall touched on it earlier, the idea that you have to be inside the home and whether you're buying it as an investment or as a place to live. Mm-hmm. You have to see how it feels as a home. That's part of the value. If you're buying it as an investment, you're also thinking about resale and will you be able to rent it out because the square footage is livable. And 90% of the time that works when I discuss it with buyers. How have we dealt with in the past? Now, I remember, and I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly when the rules changed, but there was a long time when we were not, we were told really we shouldn't be squ- uh, quoting rather square footage for co-ops because Many, many real estate firms are being sued, many agents being sued because of what we've been talking about. You know, we'd state that it's 800 square feet, but then when someone came in and measured, it's only 750 or 725. Then the rule flipped for co-ops, and now you're able to, of course, with the proper measurements, um, state square footage for co-ops. Have you guys have any, had any issues recently in the co-op world with uh, measurements being incorrect? Not really, and I think a lot of the lawsuits had to do with gross overstatements, meaning uh, brokers had stated something was 2,000 square feet when it was really 1,200, and that's mm-hmm. a big difference. Most people do not quibble over 50 square feet here or there, and I really have not seen anything change in the co-op world. There are many, many brokers who still don't quote square footage, and when I'm trying to inquire of them, about it, the first thing I say is, well, there's a big difference between a 700-square-foot uh, one-bedroom and a 1,000-square-foot one-bedroom. Just give me a hint as to which one it's closest to. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess the overall, the overall you know, conclusion where square footage is concerned is if we're representing sellers and we're representing a listing on the marketplace, let's be as accurate as possible. Now, I've also run into experiences where you know, different professionals who are responsible for measuring square footage uh, come up with different numbers. And, you know, because every, I think everybody measures differently, but I guess it, it's really our responsibility as a listing agent to make sure that we get the best professional in there to measure the square footage, including dead spaces, because a footprint is a footprint. And then you're always uh, should be able to clarify for, you know, the buyers coming in exactly what the square footage represents. All right, next topic, how to sell a New York apartment. So while the thought of selling a New York City apartment is somewhat easy, the actual go-to-market strategy may be much more complicated. Multiple elements are required. The lender who must approve uh, the buyer and the building at times before an applicant can even sign a contract. Is the buyer board passable? Uh, Does the seller choose an agent or do they decide to do it on their own? Even in a seller's market like the one we are currently in, pricing your apartment too optimistically or picking the wrong buyer can result in no viewing activity or offers, a board turndown, or decline in a mortgage application, which all leads to time lost on the market. So let's, um, let's get, you know, how, how do you go to, to market as a seller? Do you do it on your own or do you choose a real estate agent? Put your head in a seller's head at the moment. How do we do I this? Think, I think we're all brokers here, right? So, you know, I think it, we want everyone who's a seller to, to go to market with, you know, a real estate agent. But I think what we're seeing is a little bit of a trend where, you know, owners are seeing how quick the market is and they're trying to um, do it on their own. We're seeing a lot of FISBOs out there. But I think sometimes that could be, you know, a little bit problematic because I think the value of having a real estate agent is that a lot of times they're going to they're gonna tell you the, the, the difficult stuff, the hard stuff that you don't necessarily want to hear as a seller, 
you know, a lot of times sellers are emotionally attached um, and they think that, you know, because they, they put a, you know, new, a new stove in that, you know, it's, it's worth $100,000 more than, you know, the, the apartment on, you know, uh, two floors below it. So, you know, I think, you know, everyone's going to have their own opinion on how to do it. But I think, you know, going to market with a professional um, is, is always the most, is always the best thing. What I like to say is, you know, would you ever, you know, walk into court, you know, unrepresented without an attorney if you're going to, would you represent yourself? And, you know, most sellers generally say no. And then, you know, I just say, hey, you know, why, why would you do that in this situation as well? Now, that's a good point. Hold it, though. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America channel. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and we're talking about how to sell a New York City apartment. And, you know, there are multiple elements required there. The lender has to approve a building if it's a new building and they haven't uh, lent in that building before. They also have to approve the buyer. You have to be careful. Is the buyer board passable, especially if this is a co-op? Uh, and you've got to choose an agent, or if you decide to do it on your own, there are a lot of drawbacks. And I wanted to bring up the point that Niall just made just before we went to break, and that is, you know, if you were going into court, and I love this, Niall, but if you're going into court for whatever problem you have or issue you have, are you going to do it on your own or are you going to bring an attorney? Probably your decision to bring an attorney is the right one. Now, it, 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 it translates into the same here in real estate, but I, I need to ask a question, though, because... We have this for sale by owner syndrome that goes on in this town. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart, the busy seller or the seller who doesn't know anything about real estate, really. So why do many sellers attempt to do this on their own? What is that about, Avi? They try to save money on commission. You know, I think that... I they think try to save money on commission, market. but hold on now. Yeah, so, 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 
Yeah, so they try to save money on commission, and they think showing a palm at it's uh, quite easy. But it's really not. You have to schedule uh, the showings. You have to deal with, uh, obviously, bad feedback. As I said, you know, sellers are very emotional with their own apartments. They cannot hear crit- criticism. But when you explain to them that, you know, you've got to do a show schedule Monday through Friday and, and, and requirements to, see, to show rather come in any time of the day or on the weekends, and they have to go to work every day. How do they, how do they intend to, to do this right. on their own? Right, right. So they, so they obviously don't do the same job that brokers do. And uh, they, can accom- they can accommodate during the week. Uh, weekends, you know, maybe they do open houses, maybe not. But um, it's just not the same service as uh, other brokers do. And uh, I don't think they, they give the right exposure to their, uh, to their apartments. But they do try to save money on the broker commission. Not necessarily uh, the smart way to go. Now, you want to say something before I interrupted? Well, I think you ask, you know, why why are so many sellers looking to do this? And I, I completely agree with what uh, what was just said about you know saving money on the brokers' commission. And, and and I think that's because they see the market moving so quickly that they think they can manage it. And you know, I've I've been in touch with a lot of that, um, for sale by owners, and you know, in in most cases they're pretty friendly with buyers' brokers. Um, and you know, I, I would call them up and say, "Hey, I got a buyer that I'm working with. Would you pay me, you know, X percentage in terms of commission?" A lot of times they say yes. I've I've gotten very good feedback in terms of that. But you know, they're looking to save, you know, the three percent. Um, but I think what was just said is completely true. I mean, you know, they're not managing it correctly. They're they're not giving it a full a full time effort unless you know they're they're you know at home stay at home mom or something like that who just wants to tinker around and do it. But you know, in general, they think that because they read the news that they could do it. But there, there's a really good example. I don't know if I don't know if you guys read the article in Curbed, but um, 450 West 17th Street, which is the Caledonia. There's a guy over there. His name is Andrew Heffernan. He's the heir to yeah. the um, the Irish retail chain Duns, and yes. he tried to do a for sale by owner. And it's and it's funny because in the in the article um, it said that he decided to take care of things on his own to sell his two bed two bath. And it said in the article it writes how exactly he got a 19th floor apartment with huge windows to look so incredibly gloomy is anyone's guess. But basically, it was on the market for five months. It was on the 19th floor in the Caledonia, and the pictures were unbelievably terrible. And then it got listed with the broker, and the pictures are, are, are fantastic. It looks amazing, and it's getting a lot of action. I mean, something as simple as that, um, you know, adds a lot of value and really will get your, your, your apartment out there and have a lot more exposure. Well, again, you know, you, you list with an expert or, you know, whatever you're doing, go, go to the best. But you touched on something a little while ago. So, you know, most of these for sale by owners, you know, come to market. And even as Avi just said, because they don't want to pay a commission, they think they can sell quickly on their own, whatever. And then we come up, you know, with bad pictures, no floor plan in in, in a lot of cases. So, you know, they think they're going to sell quickly. So here's my question. Now, when you call uh, a seller who's trying to do this on their own and you offer 3% if I buy a buyer – I know in my in in my uh, experience, I've generally not had a problem with that because I think they expect to pay at least three percent. But if you try and call them for a six percent listing or a five percent listing, what are the odds of you getting that? Have any of you tried to do that? Slim to none. Slim to I don't none. try to do that. I what I find is there's a lot of co-op owners who feel that they want to sell it on their own, just like Avi and Niall said to save the money, and. Their little idea is, well, I was board president 15 years ago, so I know what this board is looking for. And I chat with them, and that's usually the end of it. They get a buyer on their own, and after they get board rejection, because boards change, as we well know, then they call me. 
So I don't have the commission discussion with them in the beginning in co-ops. See, I get very nervous when I hear a co-op owner wants to sell on their own. I get sometimes the mm-hmm. condo owner, you know, real property. There's not much of a condo board package, purchase application, whatever that uh, is required. Uh, but a co-op, there are so many. And I listen, I, I've heard the same thing. Well, I was president of the board, you know, for 10 years or I've done this. I know exactly what they're looking for. But you know what? That doesn't always fly. What, what besides that piece, what is the downside to selling, you know, your own property? And who, who you know, and Niall referred to this before with the pictures. I mean, who really sees this listing? You can put it up on Street Easy and maybe you can pay to have it on New York Times, but you're leaving out a whole segment of, of the population, including brokers. Who sees your listing when you're doing it on your own? You have a right point. I don't think they have the right budget to uh, market their listings. They're a plummet. I mean, uh, obviously, you need a marketing uh, team behind you, not only for street days in New York Times because everybody can do that, but you have so many other uh, places that you can advertise. Such as? Um, well, you know, first of all, it's all with postcards. Um, you know, we, myself and my marketing team, we have access to other uh, real estate uh, search engines around the world. China, Russia, Italy, uh, England, so we can have uh, we can bring those investors from overseas. Um, I just don't think they have the right exposure. Plus, you know, you have the you know little things like good show sheets, good photos, good uh, description, keywords that can come up in Google, and uh, um, it just it's, it's I don't think they do justice to themselves. Niall, so you touched on this a little bit before. So to wrap up this particular segment, what then would be you you know you'd say the benefits of listing with an agent are over trying to do it on your own? Well, I think first, you know, doing it on your own can be overwhelming, right? There's, you get a lot of calls from a lot of different people. It's always good to be represented um, by somebody in any sort of transaction or whenever you're, you know, giving, like, example, this is the, the biggest purchase or the biggest sale of someone's life. It's always best to have somebody represent you. And what you were talking about with the co-ops I think is also really important is that, you know, we do board packages all the time, and I know how to vet a buyer, um, and that's really important because you don't want to go down the road two, three months and then all of a sudden get a board rejected and then it's been on the market, it becomes a stale listing, and then you just wasted hours and days and weeks and months of your own time when you could have just given it to um, a, a real estate professional who does this all the time and then effectively markets it to the, to the mass public and the right people so that you're able to get the highest possible number. Yeah, Deborah, do you agree with that? I agree 100%. I can't even add anything because Niall is so articulate on this. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, again, I get especially concerned when, the, when we're talking co-ops because co-ops – and, you know, every building is individual and every building has its own set of, you know, rules and requirements even though they don't necessarily tell us um, <clears throat> what they are. But when people attempt to try and do something on their own in a co-op, I get really nervous. And I've had many examples where, you know, people have come to me – after they've had a board turned down or after they've had, as Avi explained a little while ago, issues with the show schedule because, you know, they don't have time, they have to go to work, uh, that they've come back. I can think of probably four times in the last 10 years where I've had, you know, pitched something, then they decided to do it on their own, and then for whatever reason, um, it fell apart. Uh, in one case, I'll never forget this, they had two board turndowns and they came to me sort of, you know, saying, hey, <laughs> I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I don't understand why it's so difficult to sell my apartment. So yeah, they have uh, paperwork with this. You know, there's a lot of paperwork. Well, there's a lot of paperwork, but there's a lot of vetting, as, as, as Niall said before, too. You know, some uh-huh. people think, oh, I make uh-huh. a lot of money. Oh, I have X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. But that's not necessarily all it takes to get past a co-op board 
and it's certainly not enough in, in some cases, we'll talk about this in the next segment, uh, to even buy an apartment. Everybody says, well, I have enough down payment, so you know, why are you telling me I can't afford this apartment? Anyway, we're going to go to break. Uh, we'll come back uh, right after. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America uh, Network. Stay tuned. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. So we're going to talk about deal killers, obstacles to a sale, and how to overcome them. Actually, this is one of my favorite topics because I think, you know, everybody has the real estate profession wrong sometimes when they think all that we do is open doors, close doors, and show apartments and talk about how wonderful ap- apartment spaces is, are. But our job really happens after the deal is consummated, meaning after you have an accepted offer and once you go through the vetting stage and once you go through the board package stage and once you go through everything, the banking stage, the attorneys, this is when the deals really become deals. And this is where I think agents across America really put all of their work into. So you think because you have an accepted offer, speaking of, that you are all set to buy or sell that apartment of yours. Not always. In the high-stakes game of New York City real estate, the road from accepted offer to a signed contract can be full of dramatic turns. And let me tell you something. I underscore drama. While most result in deals, some can fall apart for any number of reasons. So you know, how do, how do we then as, as agents, as brokers, overcome the following? For, for example, number one, financing becomes a problem for the buyer. Why? Anybody? Well, before I accept any offer or even consider one, I always want to see not a pre-qualification letter, but a pre-approval letter from a lending institution, and it shouldn't be more than two or three weeks old. That's that's a good point, Deborah. I want to 
That's a good point. I wanted to ask you about the difference between pre-qualification letter and pre-approval letter because I do the same thing lately. Anybody, unfortunately, can be pre-qualified because pre-qualified is a conversation over the telephone with a banker and a buyer, potential buyer, and you can tell this person anything. So I have opted to do the pre-qualification – I'm sorry, the pre-approval letter. Do you find that you're getting better success with that? Yes, I have not had anyone have any problems with financing, I guess, in the last, before the economic downturn. That's when I started doing it. Mm-hmm. So since they've been getting pre-approval, yeah, pre-approval letters. You can, can present, say that. You can present an offer today without pre-approval letter. Well, some people without bank statements, without showing funds in the bank. I mean, well, some no, people, no sellers would take it seriously. So I just got I just got a pre-qualification letter from someone, and I pushed back, and I got a hard time from the agent saying, "Well, you know, this person is pre-qualified." And I said, "Well, there's a difference between being approved and being pre-qualified." So I think that's where I think we're getting more towards what Deborah was talking about with pre-approval letters. But um, there are some people who are still trying to push through, you know, the qualification. What about buyer remorse? Uh, Niall, you know, you, you have a buyer, you're out there, you have an accepted offer, then all of a sudden the buyer calls you in a couple of days after a contract is out, says, hey, you know what, Niall, I don't want to go through this anymore. Yeah, I think that's something that we're all facing, you know, because new comps are being made every day. So, um, you know, sometimes when you get an accepted offer, it might be the highest price per square foot or the highest comp in a particular building or a neighborhood. So your buyer feels like, uh, I don't know if this is the right thing. But I think what I do in general is, is I try and be as upfront and honest about all of the comps in the area. So that allows them to feel really comfortable. You know, I had one situation, for example, where um, there was a, it was a 1.597 where we had the accepted offer and an apartment sold for 1.6, only a $3,000 difference. Um, that was, you know, I don't know, five, 600 square feet bigger. And he was like, Hey, he brought it up. He's like, Hey, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if this is, if this is the right buy for me. Look at this. And I, I pretty much brought him back down to reality. And I said, Hey, Remember, we talked about this, you know, uh, about a week ago. He's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about it. He's like, what was it? And the, 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 the difference was the maintenance, even though it was, you know, almost the same um, price, was that the maintenance was $1,800 on the 1.597, and on the $1.6 million one, it was roughly double at 3600 I said, look, the maintenance is almost double on this one. That's why it's at a lower price. And he was like, oh, yeah. So it's just all about, like, you know, really just being upfront, I think, about all of the different comps and all the different factors, you know, in turning, if it's a co-op, the maintenance or condos, talking about common charges and real estate taxes, just all-inclusive costs. I think that was really important. Other than financial reasons <clears throat> for what you just stated, are there other reasons why buyers will back out of a deal? Is it just based on finances or their enlightenment with some new numbers lately, or is it other reasons? Cold feet. Friends. Why? Why are you buying right now? Friends. Yeah, you're crazy. The market is crazy. Wait, hold. There's so many factors. So I mean, you can worry. You're working so hard with the buyer, and then so you have a buyer, and they're ready to, you know, contract us out. You have an accepted offer, and a friend comes by to see the apartment. I love this. The friend comes by with the buyer to see the apartment, and all of a sudden, as you just you suggest, doing? why are you doing this? The prices are crazy. The market is hot. Why are you paying over asking price? Bing, bang, boom. Done. Deal is done. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the seller. Why does the seller renege? Because I just I personally just had a situation where um, I'm representing the buyer. Actually, I take that back. I had two situations. I'm representing the buyer and the seller reneged, and then I'm representing the seller and the seller reneged. Why, why guys are sellers in a hot market where they can pretty much predict and get anything they want price-wise? Why are they backing up? Sometimes they have no place to go. 
they may have had an apartment or even a house out of the city on their radar. They may have put in an offer and it may have fallen through. And then they get worried, even if they have an above the asking price offer on their current home, that they won't have any place to go. And I've had that. That's a very good point, and that's probably, I think, you know, one of the major situations going on in our real estate marketplace right now in Manhattan, or I'm sorry, in New York City, because it's affecting not only what Deborah just explained, but it's affecting, you know, the reason why we don't have a lot of listings on the marketplace, why there's a severe limitation in listings, because sellers think, well, I can sell my apartment, I can get a good dollar for it, I want to move on to get something bigger, or in some cases smaller because I'm downsizing, but because of the market conditions, I can't be guaranteed that the next place I want is going to be available to me. And I think one of the things that frightens people the most in this in this world of real estate in New York City is I can't be without a home. I have to have my home. I want to sell, but I don't know where I'm going to go. What about a last-minute higher offer? We've all been involved in bidding wars. We've talked about the, the intense market over the last couple of weeks in season one. But you got an accepted offer, a contract's going out. It may have been over asking price. It may be right at asking price. But at the last minute, this, uh, the seller's representative calls you and says, by the way, Mr. Agent, I have a higher offer that just came in, and now we have to you know, either renegotiate or we have to you know, figure this out. How often is this happening these days, and why? What a sticky situation. I hate to be I've, I've seen it in my business. Um, you know, I think we have to just be prepared and at least just, you know, touch on it when you're working with a buyer and kind of, uh, you know, let them know that we, we should at least expect something like this to happen because there's so many surprises in, in, the, in the real estate game at this point. And, you know, if we just expect it, then we know what to do. And I think having your right team in order is really important. I have, you know, uh, mortgage bankers and mortgage brokers that I work with. I also have a, a couple of attorneys that I have. Um, and, I, and I make sure that once we're, you know, submitting an offer, that we have our attorney ready so that, you know, literally we could sign the contract. As, the attorney could run the due diligence and we could sign the contract as soon as possible. I think that's really important as well is having the right team. How do we overcome a board rejection? Now, you know, we talked about this before with co-ops especially. You know, co-ops have board applications. Condos have board applications. Let's use a co-op for an example because that's really where you get your rejections. Now what do you do? Buyer is vetted. You you think that they're qualified. You think a lot of good things. You put the package through. Everybody's happy. We're waiting for an interview date and we're waiting for a closing date. And all of a sudden you get a call from the managing agent saying, I'm sorry, but we've declined your applicant. Sometimes you know why you get that rejection. I just had a situation where a young couple was purchasing in a co-op together, well, mostly the man, made over $350,000 a year, and they were buying a one-bedroom. This was more than enough. They had a lot of liquid assets on their own. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, he's like us. He's a 1099. He's an independent contractor. I really was not comfortable with it. I discussed it with the seller's broker, and he said, no, no, they're fine. They're fine. Let's put the package in. Everything will be fine. And they were rejected. So I went back after speaking with my buyers and their parents, and the parents agreed to act as guarantors if they would accept that. The board said they would, but we need a package, a full package from the parents within three days. And we did it. Uh, <laughs> well, wow. That's a good thing. That's the parents hats off to you. Yeah, the hats off to you as right. actually lived down the street from me, and it worked. 
but we got them in and they passed the board and that was the problem. They were independent contractors and the board was kind of nervous about this. And in these days of financial instability, sometimes if it's something like that, the boards will let you know the cause of the rejection and sometimes you could fix it, sometimes you can't. Well, you know, really, again, hats off to you because that's a very unusual, very unique occurrence. I've I've tried in my past uh, a couple of times to resubmit, so to speak, and, you know, the answer's always been, listen, Vince, you know, the decision has been made. We're not going back to the board members, you know, whatever, or they don't want, you know, to talk about anything. But you know, it, that, It's a big way, decline. That brings us to the point why buyers need brokers and why sellers need brokers because she ah. made a deal happen. If, well, if the buyer didn't have the... Didn't, didn't have her or the seller didn't have the other broker. I don't know what the other broker did, but uh, in this case, she did a phenomenal job. All right. So that's a good point because you know what? That's an excellent point actually because we're talking about sellers being represented by, by agents. How many, you know, how many uh, buyers run around there on their own? You know, agents like the direct deal understood. However, in these particular cases, that person would never have been able to succeed right. in this so, so without the, representation. The, obviously, the broker's job is to make the deal happen just like she did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, have any of you had a condo board turned down? Never. I have not. No. Okay. No, I, I have not either. Uh, most of the time, that's impossible to ha- to to have happen because then they have to exercise their first right of refusal and buy or rent the apartment, and and boards are not necessarily in the business of, you know, buying apartments in the building. But although I have heard of a couple. And the reason for that is because there were a couple of fire sales. This is, a, this is like right after the the, uh, the financial crisis. And uh, people were just trying to get rid of their apartments quickly and lowering the prices. And the board felt that they didn't want to lower the standard mm-hmm. or the pricing standard in the building. So they declined the application. And then they actually went forward and bought the, uh, bought the apartment. So, again, doesn't happen that often, but it does. All right, we're going to come back to this topic in a bit. We've got to go to break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America 
at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, so we're back with uh, our topic of deal killers, obstacles to a sale, and how to overcome them. You know, just when you think you have an accepted offer uh, and you're set to either buy or sell, the apartment, you know, something goes wrong. You know, it's, it's not always a, a slam dunk. So in the last segment here, I wanted to just continue this conversation. So let's talk about problems with the building and problems with attorneys and problems with appraisers. You know, all of these things, again, post-accepted offer and in some cases where appraisal is a concern, post-contract. We have issues with stuff. So, you know, how do we, how do we overcome those? And, and, you know, I hate to say this, but they're almost typical of just about every deal we go through. Let, let's talk about attorneys. Why are attorneys difficult? I, I love it. I think we were talking about it offline um, just a little while ago. Is, you know, you've got to pick a New York City attorney. You know, you can't have your uncle in Tennessee because he's your uncle representing you. Um, the deal's just going to die. Yeah, you know. So if you have, if you're working with a real estate agent or a broker, you know, generally it's, it's a good idea to to take their um, recommendations because we do this all the time. I have a couple attorneys that I work with that are fantastic, that are hyper responsive, that get that get tough deals done. You know, on the contrary, you know, you have slow attorneys who only use fax machines uh, versus emails and and all that stuff, and it's impossible to communicate. And you know, time kills deals, so it's really important to have a hyper-responsive attorney in your back pocket. You know, buyers are trying to save money on attorneys. And it's not, uh, it's not a big issue. I mean, $500, you know, if an attorney charged $2,000 and a good attorney charged twenty five or twenty seven or even 3000 but don't forget that attorney has a team, you know, behind him. Mm-hmm. So to do the due diligence, uh, you know, run to the, to the, to the management and, and uh, see the minutes and uh, see the financials and get the deal done, uh, sometimes you do want to invest that extra thousand dollars because it's you know it's one of your biggest purchases. So you get what you pay for. Exactly. Love it. All right. Listen. So how 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 bad or good are appraisals these days? I remember you know not too many years ago appraisals were coming in short, very short, almost a hundred percent of the time, and that poses all kinds of problems for buyers and for sellers. So are we <clears> seeing <throat> any more of that today? I mean, I have had no appraisal problems in the last. Uh, I don't want to jinx myself a couple of years, but have you guys seen any appraisals coming in short? Of course. I have just recently, as a matter of fact, because what the banks are doing, again, as Avi mentioned, a lot of it comes down to money. Just like we are licensed to sell real estate anywhere in the state of New York, appraisers are licensed to appraise anywhere in the state of New York. And because an appraiser from Albany or Suffolk County might be paid $200, whereas a Manhattan appraiser might be paid 500 the banks are going to hire them. And they don't always take into consideration outdoor space, views, things like that. And I did not have any problems during the downturn, but this year I've had three appraisals come up short because of these outside appraisers. And how, how were you solving that, Deborah? Or how was it solved? Um, one of them, the seller... Uh, took off a little of the purchase price because she really wanted this buyer. The buyer mm-hmm. kicked in a little more, and they added a rider to the contract with the new sale price. That was lucky. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it really was lucky. The other two, um, one of them, the bank actually, I had a wonderful mortgage banker. He had them get a different appraiser 
and he paid for it, which amazed me. And the third just didn't go through. Another option is to use another lender, another lender and a new appraiser. So and go, it's happened to so me go before. Through, so go through the financing right. process. So, so all one lender with one appraiser obviously was short. Then the other option said, I said to my buyers, you don't want to lose this deal right. because it was non mortgage contingency deal. So we had to bring another lender, the other lender, another appraiser, and it came right on, right on the money. So that shows that it's a very gray area with appraisers. It's uh, something that um, <clears throat> I completely don't agree with, um, that one appraiser, one person can determine if the deal go through or do not go through. Well, again, I think it all harkens back to what we said earlier and, you know, Niles um, – a reference to you know going to court without an attorney. I mean, you go into a business transaction or a real estate transaction without an experienced real estate agent, either representing the seller or the buyer, and these things come up. They aren't going to get solved because we can offer suggestions and we can guide people into the right areas when a problem arises. You know, here's the last one. My my favorite one is the small things can crash a deal. Sometimes, mm-hmm. how many times have you seen fighting over a chandelier or something affixed to a wall? in an apartment, and it doesn't come up until you're at the closing table. I want that chandelier. I went to the walkthrough this morning, and it's gone. Why did it disappear? Who took it away? Why? How many times has that happened? I can tell you it happens to me often, and it's really hysterical. Well, I try to be upfront uh, when we have the deal sheet out. You know, once we uh-huh. have an accepted offer, then you write, you know, you point out what you want and what you don't. Now I represent a seller on 69th Street and we literally went through every single item in mm-hmm. the apartment and, okay, what do you want, what you don't want, mm-hmm. shades. Uh, but somehow things get forgotten because I had that recently over a chandelier <clears> and <throat> it was supposed to be left behind and we show up at walkthrough and they took it away. Reason, I decided I wanted it. Well, it's in a contract that you're giving it to the buyer. Now you decided you wanted it. So a huge disagreement you know, took place at the closing table and the seller had to give the person money to replace that chandelier. Anyway, the drama, as I said earlier in the segment, uh, <laughs> drama, and believe me, it starts all the time. So next topic, rising rents and changing attitudes spell the end of Little Italy. Now, I'm pointing out Little Italy because it probably is the one of the oldest neighborhoods in downtown Manhattan that has been very ethnic and very you know um, specific for many, many years. This micro neighborhood centered on three blocks of Mulberry Street between Broome and Canal Streets once spanned 50 square blocks. Now, however, a combination of rapidly rising rents and shifting demographics is threatening the historic neighborhood to such an extent that is on the verge of disappearing entirely. So it goes from 50 square blocks to down to maybe three or four square blocks. If Little Italy continues to disappear, can you rebuild it again somewhere else? I mean, is this a situation where so this, the people are being pushed out of this particular neighborhood because of new developments maybe? But can you recreate this someplace else or is it not even worth it? Well, what is the opinion out there on that? Yeah, I'm I not, I'm not sure. Happening. It, yeah, What's I mean, it? Is, what were you saying, Deborah? I was going to say, I can't see it happening, especially because I'm originally from Los Angeles, which is a very homogenous existence. And one of the wonderful things about New York is this was one of the first places all the new immigrants started coming to this country from the day the country was founded. And these were their enclaves. And once you leave one of those little communities, no matter what ethnic group you're from, they're moving out to what in their minds is bigger and better and, hey, we made it and we're moving to, you know, any place outside of Manhattan. So I don't think it could be recreated, which is a tragedy. 
I, I, I think I agree with you. And I think it's a similar trend, you know, that's happening in the city. The gay population, for example, you know, no longer heading to destination places like the village or to Chelsea or even a Hell's Kitchen anymore. But everything is so mainstream, whether it's you're an immigrant, whether you're gay, whether you're white or black or yellow, it doesn't necessarily matter. I think Manhattan and New York City as a whole has regentrified to the point where everything is okay and everything is acceptable all over the place. But, you know, it, places like Little Italy, though, you know, for me, all right, I'm an Italian, you know, American, yeah. but for me, it's kind of like it was part of my heritage and it was part of my background, although I didn't grow up in the city, but. You went there for feast every September. You went there for great Italian food. You went there for just, you know, mingling with, you know, church festivities, whatever. It's almost sad to see neighborhoods like that Chinatown, for example, but the same no thing. But there are no Italian residents in Little Italy. There are restaurants, but not, little, not necessarily Italian residents anymore. No. You know? well, so. well, right. So, you know, mm -hmm. it, so I guess my question is overall – is this a good thing for New York City or is it not? I mean, the, 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 the mainstreaming of just about everything and everybody. Is it a good thing for New York City? I do think you need to keep that little, you know, niche here and there, you know, Chinatown, little Italy, you know. But overall, I definitely, you know, it's a, it's a very small city and you do want to build new, new buildings. But if it nicer. Well, you want to build nicer buildings, but you're, you know, if, it, if all of this stuff disappears, now what? Well, yeah. I think I don't know if it's going to disappear. The, you know, there's a lot of um, you know. I, I live in the area, right? So I live in Little Italy, and I, I I walk up and down. I think you know Mulberry Street, for example, is more or less a tourist destination. It's kind of just you know, I would like what Avi said. It's not necessarily you know the Italian you know section of the yeah. of the uh, the city nowadays. It's more of this is you know it kind of like pays homage to the to what it used to be. And you know it's just like you know guys out front wearing the you know the white shirts and the bow ties saying come in here and eat. And I wouldn't even say the food's you know all that good unless you go to the right places. And there's there's a couple of them there. But I think it's 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 gonna. I don't know if it's going to dwindle down and all all of, all of a sudden disappear. I think there will be a, a mainstay that will stay there, and I don't think the city will let that happen. But again, it'll just be an international tourist destination for um, for years. That's what I see. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, me too. Well, well what about what well, I do too? But so, what about other areas? You know, the country that we all visit and stuff. Because there's Chinatown and Little Italy and, and a lot of other big cities. Do you see that they're going through the same change, or is it basically just happening here? Absolutely. I see it everywhere because that's where the cheap real estate starts out because people don't want to go back to where their grandparents came in. Mm -hmm. but And that's where the new developers come in. And unfortunately, I see it throughout the country. All right. Talking about changes in neighborhoods, you know, as downtown continues to gentrify, the famed artist community is shrinking. As New York City's flourishing luxury market drives prices as high as the rising new condo towers, springing up all over, artists are struggling to find their place in the increasingly unaffordable Manhattan neighborhoods. Why were the artists first attracted to living downtown? I mean, when, when, when folks came into uh, the city, why are artists, why were artists attracted to living downtown versus anywhere else? What was it about downtown that was so attractive? I think it was affordable. Yeah. It, it was affordable. It was, it was cheaper than uh, other places back then, Upper East Side, Upper West Side. True. Where do they live? Where do they live downtown? I mean, I remember, you know, doing a new development project in uh, Brooklyn Heights, um, uh, 20 Henry Street, and it was once a very affordable housing uh, development for artists. And over the years, and there was lots of controversy as the developer was purchasing this, this property, 
to put the artist out and to eventually get the permits to convert this to a luxury condominium. So people say to me, you know, where do the artists go? Where do the people who can't afford to live like these luxury condo people, where do they go? It's a very interesting concept. I think a lot of them are just, you know, still, for example, you ask where do they live? I think, you know, Soho is where where they live, or Noho, or or that kind of area downtown. And I think a lot of them are fighting tooth and nail if they're still there to, to stay. You know, developers go in and then try and purchase these types of buildings that have artists, um, the IMD buildings or um, artists in residencies where, you know, they kind of have laws where the artists can kind of stay there. Well, the developers go in and they try and, you know, get those tenants out. So they fight tooth and nail in order to stay because if the developers get them out, they're unlocking value and they can get, you know, higher um, rents or they could, you know, make it or convert it into a condo. So I think they try and fight tooth and nail to stay. But if they have to go, then a lot of them are moving to, to Brooklyn. And if they're moving to Brooklyn, it used to be Williamsburg. Um, and, it, and now it's not. It's more Bushwick and then, you know, Bed-Stuy. And you're seeing, you know, a lot of, like, loft buildings, again, in the Bushwick area. I think that's where I've seen a lot of, um, you know, artists go, is, is staying consistent with the loft style, but, you know, more in the, the Bushwick, you know, area of, uh, of Brooklyn, where it's certainly more affordable. All right, guys, we got to go. We got to end there. So I just want to close with saying the financial district's ornate Woolworth building, once the world's tallest building, will soon have another impressive attribute to add to its 101-year history. The legendary property is adding a luxury residential component inside its landmark terracotta walls. The top 30 floors of the 60-story building will give away to 34 one- to four-bedroom condo homes, including a five-story penthouse in the Coppola, priced roughly at $3,000 per square foot. Sales are expected to launch next spring. On next week's show, it's about the Hamptons. The summer season is officially underway, and this year the rental market, in addition to the sales market, has skyrocketed. The playground of the rich and famous remains the hotbed of social entertainment and status. East End pleasure seekers this season have become acquainted with new hotspots born during the off-season, from upscale apparel pop-up shops to new restaurants to trendy hotels and hangouts. We will discuss with a few Hamptons real estate agents and residents next week. Be sure to tune in. Until next time, thank you for joining me today. I look forward to being with you next Tuesday. Remember, Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific time, live on the Variety Channel here on the Voice America Network. You can always catch the show later in the day or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. Remember, you can tweet me at Vince Rocco or find me on Facebook. Thanks again, everybody, and have a great week. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.